I'm Bryce Futch. And I'm Tony Melton. And this is The Way Forward. Welcome to today's episode of The Way Forward. I'm Bryce Futch. And I'm Tony Melton. And today we are going to be talking about China, specifically economic relations with China, uh, intellectual property, China's theft of that IP, as well as a number of different economic issues that China is promoting uh, around the world and then some things that we should probably be doing as well. Uh, and then also some things we should be countering with countering them with. Uh, we have some wonderful guests today. And, and Tony, would you mind introducing them? Yeah, absolutely. We have two great guests today, Adam McLeod and Michael Hendricks. Adam is the professor of law at Faulkner, and Michael is the senior fellow and director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. Adam, I was wondering if you could start us off and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm a uh... As you say, a law professor, I teach uh, at the law school at Faulkner University, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I teach a lot of courses in both law and legal philosophy there. Uh, heavy focus on property and intellectual property. Um, I also uh, look at um, legal doctrines that transcend state and national boundaries. So today we call it international law. Classically, it would have been called the just gentium or the law of civilized people. Um, so those those legal those legal rules and doctrines and rights which um, all civilized nations should should respect, uh, and then I teach analytical legal philosophy um, in other places uh, during the summer and and speak and write about um, property and related issues. Great, thank you, Michael. Would you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. So as you said, I'm at the Manhattan Institute. We are in New York City. Manhattan, Kansas is lovely, but we are in Manhattan, <laughs> New York City. And, you know, we were founded actually from a couple of folks who cared about international economics. They founded a think tank. They said, we don't, there's a lot of think tanks in Washington, D.C. We don't want to be yet another one. We want to be in New York City, hmm. capital of finance. The window of finance gave them a window into not only national politics and international politics, but also the future of New York City. And really, it was that window that opened up an opportunity the Manhattan Institute, and then ultimately myself, decades on, to care a lot about cities and what happens in cities and the states that ultimately run them. You know, cities are creatures of the state. So what does all of that have to do with China? Well, small businesses, um, especially mom and pop shops, they operate often the local level. This is what they care about. And um, if you think that international politics can affect mom and pop shops, if you think that international issues can affect what goes on in neighborhoods or goes on, you know, forget even small mom and pop shops, just startups, uh, high-flying tech startups. You're wrong. Uh, what China does or does not do affects all of them. And then by extension, it kind of falls within my purview. So I'm very, I've been very curious for a while on what China's trade policies do to affect small businesses throughout this country uh, and what we should be doing domestically in our economy to counter that kind of competition. And uh, and then just by the way, I, I have a degree in international relations. So this is just, a, at least as a hobby, a fascinating, fascinating subject. From Scotland, I, th- I hear. That's right. That's right. right. University of St. Andrews. St. Andrews, the home of golf. That's very safe. <laughs> and the College of Prince William. Yeah, so many stories there. Yeah. Very nice. Well, thanks for being with us, Michael. Yeah, we're excited to have you both, and I think this is going to be a really good conversation. Uh, Adam, would you mind starting off and just kind of give us a little bit of a primer on intellectual property, what it is, what what it's rooted in, and, and why it matters? 
Yeah, well, primer is important, and I'm glad you're starting there um, because I think a lot of people misunderstand intellectual property, and they they misunderstand all three of those things that you just listed. Uh, they don't know what it is. They don't know why it matters. Uh, they don't understand why it's important. So, so, um, so I would say three things about intellectual property that are crucial to understand. First, intellectual property is a moral achievement. It's something that reflects our dignity as human beings created in the image of God. Second, it's a natural right. Intellectual creations uh, belong to uh, their creators as a matter of uh, natural justice, even before positive law states and governments get involved. And then, and then third, the reason why we secure um, intellectual property rights in our positive law and our human laws, the laws that are uh, posited and, and enforced and adjudicated by governments, um, is because there, there are extremely important practical benefits uh, to be gained by securing to authors and inventors um, and, and composers uh, their, their natural rights. Right. So on the first point, intellectual property is first and foremost a moral achievement. The one mark of human distinctiveness, what sets us apart from everything else that we find in the world, whether it's rocks or animals or um, other living organisms, um, and, and really the source of our human dignity is that we have this incredible capacity to reason and to create, to order the world um, within the four dimensions of time and space, that is to, to exercise what, what, what the Hebrew scriptures call dominion mm. um, over the world, to obey God's second commandment to Adam and Eve, right? Um, right. To exercise dominion over the world within time and space the way that God does over all eternity. Mm. So, so God, in, in, in the Hebrew account and in the Christian account, God, uh, God implants in each of us this radical capacity to not just act moment for moment, to, um, uh, to, to sort of be enslaved to our passions and our appetites and our desires, but to actually think and reason, yeah. to plan ahead, to create, to bring about new states of affairs that are good um, and that, that wouldn't have existed but for mm -hmm. our creative effort. So, so that's, that's sort of the classical account um, for why intellectual property matters. Um, now, even if even if you don't buy that, even if, if you don't buy the sort of um, you know monotheistic creation story, right. um, you can look at human beings and you can see there is something different about being human, mm -hmm. and and I think it behooves us to ask what that is, and and I think a moment's reflection should teach us that what is distinctive about being human is we can be but for causes of new states of affairs mm -hmm. in the world. We can bring about prosperity. We can bring about new inventions. We can. We can compose symphonies and, and novels, right. um, and, and we can value those things um, in a way that no other, no other creature that we find anywhere um, in the world mm. can do. Mm. Uh, and that's something worthy of respect. That's something that's, that's worthy of, frankly, awe um, uh, when, you, when you contemplate the fact that, that, that that's contingent. That didn't have to be the case, right? right? It didn't have to be the case that we could find such a magnificent creature. Hmm. Um, uh, on earth who is capable of, of doing all these amazing things. So that's the first thing. It's a, it's a human achievement. The second thing to note is that intellectual property is a natural right. Hmm. So we find intellectual property in our fundamental law. This is the law that's known as the common law. It's the law that we inherited at the time of the American founding from, uh, from England. So it exists prior to the existence of any state or government. Um, the common law consists of those ancient 
uh, rights and liberties that are, um, they're called immemorial usages, meaning they've been around since a time when no one can remember anything to the contrary. Things like the jury trial right, um, estates of private property ownership, due process of law, um, these things that are part of our fundamental law that, that would be sources of rights, even if there was no you know, state of Georgia or right. constitution of the United States. Um, and at common law, in our fundamental law, um, authors and inventors uh, have rights to the things that they create. So if you write or compose or invent something, that thing is yours. It's your creative work. You are the but-for cause of it having come into existence, and you get to control it. Now, that right at common law is very, very limited. It's essentially a right of secrecy or privacy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually the original right of privacy. It gets it gets distorted by the Supreme Court of the United States. Right. The century, right. But, but the original natural right of privacy is a right to keep your intellectual creations to yourself. So in copyright, this is the right of first publication. No one else has a right to take a novel that you've written or a song that you've written and publish it until you first disclose it to the world. And then in the realm of inventions, this is the basis for a number of different uh, doctrines from trade secret doctrines to misappropriation doctrine unfair competition doctrine, all of these are grounded in this natural right that we find in our fundamental common law um, to, to keep your intellectual creations to yourself because they're yours. You, you are the but-for cause of them having been brought into being. Now, the problem, of course, with a right of secrecy is you can't always extract all the value, the economic value from the thing that you created. Uh, uh, in fact, um, for most intellectual creations, that's the case. Not, not all, but for many intellectual creations, the way to extract value from it is to disclose it to somebody. Uh, you need to license your invention to someone who can manufacture it, or you need to uh, you know, license um, uh, your novel to a publisher or, or whatever. So, so, the, so the third point is equally important, and that is um, the reason why we have intellectual property statutory regimes positive laws, which secure those natural rights, um, like the Copyright Act, the Patent Act, the Lanham Act. The reason why we do that is the rest of us benefit every time an intellectual property creator discloses their creation. Right. So the reason why we offer to authors a, a, a limited uh, exclusive right to publicly exercise their rights in their um, in their in their uh, in, in their creation, their novel or their or their work of art. Um, the reason why we extend uh, a, an exclusive patent right to inventors is to induce them to disclose their creation. And then the, the consideration is they've given us something of value. They sure. disclose to us something that they've created. We're giving them something of value in exchange. You may now practice that publicly for this limited period of time. After which that intellectual creation passes into the public domain and anybody can use it, can improve upon it, can access it, can develop it into um, further intellectual creation. Um, um, and, and everybody benefits from this exchange. Right. And, and it's really important that we honor that exchange. Oh, yeah. Because it, is, it's a it has practical benefits. But as I said earlier, it also has moral benefits. Right. And, and, and what we're doing is we're asking creators to give up their natural rights. Um, for for a secure um, a secure positive right, yeah. uh, and it, then it behooves us to honor honor our end of the bargain and make sure right. those rights are secure.
And I think that's the problem with China is China doesn't care, right? They're an authoritarian communist regime and they don't look at things even regardless of, like you said, regardless of the Judeo-Christian worldview, like they don't look at that historicity and say that this matters. For them, it's a ends justify the means. And if they can skip a step and save some money on development and steal, they do. And it's their the worldview in which they live, work, and exist, just it's totally opposite of what you just described. And I, I love to quote Trey Gowdy on this, but the way we get somewhere matters. And so having that history in that context, I think is really important for how we move forward. So Michael, you want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the impact on small business, local economies when China is stealing these new developments, uh, whether it's a specific uh, product or whether it's, uh, whether it's advancements within a specific in- industry, can you kind of expand on, on how that hurts local businesses? Sure. So Adam did a terrific job pointing out why intellectual property matters, what its history is, <clears throat> what the theory is behind it. And now we're getting to where this is where the rubber meets the road. So to give you a sense of what uh, China's relationship is with American intellectual property, it's useful to say that just small business or not, small or large, one in five companies last year told CNBC, according to a survey, that China had stolen their intellectual property. Wow. Now, that's just within the year, one in five corporations. Now, <clears throat> meanwhile, there's another way you can look at it. When the U.S. Department of Justice is looking at what are called economic espionage cases, 80% of them, 80% involve China, China conducting acts of economic espionage. What we know for a fact is that China is taking our intellectual property. Uh, they're taking what we've generated through our research, through our investments and in innovation, uh, taking those goods, uh, taking those ideas, producing goods become of, because of them, and then subsidizing those goods that they produce through our intellectual property. And that is you know, incredibly uncompetitive. Mm-hmm. Now, then, of course, like, how do we fight that? Well, that's proven difficult for a variety of reasons. One of them is just like fighting intellectual property in China is like playing whack-a-mole. You just, you just can't find the, the different targets at the right time. Right. Now, all of this is costly to our country and our companies and ultimately to you and to me. But for small businesses, for a variety of reasons, they're more exposed here. So one is just that they have small businesses have less margin to fight uh, than, say, a large uh, contractor, uh, uh, pharmaceutical company. They just have less margin to fight, less scale. Mm -hmm. Um, And meanwhile, even though they have less of an ability to fight intellectual property theft, they're also a key source of innovation. right? Right. So they're both potentially more of a target and they have less ability to fight. now, what what really kind of irks me is that uh, while these small businesses are more exposed, by contrast, the Chinese firms, having spent less in innovation, right, having acquired our ideas, mm-hmm. they now have more money available to produce those goods, and then of course, China then offers subsidies on top of that. So that right. when products come ashore. They're able to outcompete us. Uh, right. So then small businesses are yet again more exposed, 
the subsidized product from overseas competitors. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this is something that was a really large issue on, say, Amazon's third-party marketplace, just for basic goods, you know, tchotchkes and T-shirts and things like that. That obviously was outrageous to a mom in Des Moines selling products on Amazon. It's even it's 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 equally as outrageous, potentially more transformative when it's for a small, innovative, high-tech startup. Right. And you know, just to give you a you know one example of of the impacts of this, uh, I think that China's intellectual property theft accounts for the rise of their telecom equipment makers. Um, uh, and I think it also is, is certainly accounting for their, uh, rise as a, as a military power. They've acquired mm-hmm. a lot of our military technology. Yep. Um, and then what, you know, what, one of the, just looking ahead, one of the potentially most harmful things is, let me look at, look at what was just, you know, a handful of years ago, also a relatively small startup company called Moderna. They had a technology, a yeah. risky technology to create mRNA vaccines. They took a bet on it and they they won. Right. <laughs> they, 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 they were able to push back the tide of COVID. China could just copy that technology mm-hmm. and then use that technology to bankrupt Moderna. That, they absolutely have it in their power to do that. And if it does happen, let's not be surprised. This is what we're facing now. Right. Yeah, I was I was reading an article the other day about a very large solar panel manufacturer uh, in China, hacked their system, stole all their technology, turned around, created the exact same product, and was selling it. I think for like sixty percent less. And it's just a continual pattern of this abuse and theft. Uh, do do either of y'all have thoughts on on where do we go from here? What is what is the right way to either regulate or restrict, or is it is it increased tariffs on, on goods that are being imported from China? Because there's also a lot of U.S. manufacturers that go about the right they go about it the right way and do use China to produce their goods. Um, a, a great one is Stanley, right? So my, my wife just got me a, a big Stanley thermos uh, for my birthday, and which you know sounds kind of nerdy. Is that's the gift that I wanted, but that's what I wanted. Uh, and it's a classic American company. It's been around since the early 1900s, and on the bottom, it's made in China. And so how do we how do we fight their uh, their abuse? Without harming U.S. companies that do legitimate business there, you know it's 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 really funny. There's a national conservative conference going on now. Folks who are primarily America first, and they're handing out mugs at this conference. Literally going on right now. They're handing out mugs at the conference, and when you turn over the bottom of the mug, it says "Made in China." Perfect. You know, (laughs) you just can't escape it, no matter what you want. Now, now, uh, I'll be. Uh, immensely curious what Adam's perspective is. I'll lay my cards on the table and say, I don't think tariffs are the right solution. Here. Yeah. I think there are some solutions. They're not easy, but I think there are some solutions. One of the, one of the problems I have with across the board tariffs to, that are meant specifically to, uh, to target intellectual property theft is that they punish everyone. Mm-hmm. And they punish everyone, even if they're a bad actor. They punish everyone, even if they're a good actor. They punish everybody. I just think that that is way too broad based. We need to target the foreign recipients' stolen intellectual property, uh, which the United States has been hesitant to do. And once we made it clear 
that we should that 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 there are consequences to foreign actors. We should also make it clear to domestic actors if they play footsie with bad actors abroad, there will be consequences as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I can I'll, I'll get into that just a little bit, but just to back up again on the on tariffs, we just obviously went through a period during the Trump administration where we did boost tariffs. We did get a look at what tariffs could or could not do. And, you know, this is a an issue that you kind of raised a little bit, domestic manufacturing, domestic makers, broader than simply fighting intellectual property theft. Tariffs were rolled out as a way to boost American manufacturing. And that is, you could argue, potentially one way to counter that intellectual property theft, make our actors stronger. Um, nevertheless, I would say that those are two discrete issues. But it, it's worth pointing out that Job growth in manufacturing slowed right when the tariffs right. were instituted. Um, uh, m- meanwhile, imports um, basically stayed the same from East Asia. Uh, it really didn't have any significant effect. What we saw was that if manufacturers in China who do business with us shifted their production at all, it was not to America. Mm-hmm. It was to Vietnam. Right. to Mexico, to other countries. So um, if anything, the pandemic did more to, and, supply, and more recently supply chain hurdles have done more to either reshore manufacturing or shorten supply chains or begin that process, or at the very least to provide more competition to Chinese manufacturing mm-hmm. than tariffs ever did. Uh, and so I would rather than saying, you know, this is the U.S. against China alone. Another way that we can look at it is. How can we find other allies in East Asia to strengthen our trading relationships with? Um, in addition to finding ways to increase our capacity to manufacture, while also, most importantly, fighting in a targeted way. The theft of intellectual property. That's kind of how we look at it. If we can pit the rest of East Asia against China in our trading relationship, probably a good thing. We kind of lost an opportunity when we pulled out of TPP negotiations in 2017. Nevertheless, I think we have an opportunity to try to re-engage in that process. It's sort of divide and conquer, right? Although for any of our Chinese recipients uh, of this podcast, please do not take the conquering seriously. (laughs) What I meant was... (laughs) We want to, we, as China does, want to be a strong player in the international economic space. Right. Now, I, I, there's a lot that I just said in the tariff. I would love to get into more that we can do specifically to fight stolen intellectual property. But I really want to hand it over to the expert here, Adam, yeah. uh, to take things from here. Well, no, I think I think I would affirm, um, but a lot of what Michael just very expertly laid out, uh, you certainly want whatever solutions you put forward to be tailored to the problem. Um, and, and, and it does seem to me that one um, uh, just just fundamental problem before you get into economic analysis or the sort of pragmatic payoffs of tariffs, um, just one fundamental problem with using tariffs to combat intellectual property theft is, is they're just perpendicular to each other. It's completely right. orthogonal. Um, it's not really responsive. Um, at all. Um, and, and I also want to affirm Michael's suggestion that we ought to start here at home. Mm-hmm. So, so 
one thing that that is not fully appreciated, I think, is the extent to which elite American institutions have become anti-intellectual property over the last 20 years. Right. This is really being led in Silicon Valley, um, where uh, you have large transnational um, uh, institutions that benefit from natural property rights, common law property rights, mm -hmm. trade secrets, right? Um, the algorithms which have made uh, you know the, the Fang companies extravagantly wealthy are protected by um, common law. Right. Um, those are intellectual property, um, and and so they sort of hide behind the monopoly or or de facto monopoly positions that they built using their own intellectual property rights. Um, to to um, to go after and weaken the the statutory intellectual property rights of of small businesses, startups, um, and scrappy competitors. Hmm. And we've we've seen this time and time and time again. Um, if you want to know who's behind the latest attempt to undermine American intellectual property rights, the money's probably coming from Silicon large Silicon Valley transnational corporations. Um, and then, of course, those corporations are then funding research institutes at elite law schools right. and universities, um, which then do things like enact the American Invents Act, which is mm -hmm. uh, a, a badly misnamed statute, which severely weakened patent rights. And what do you do when you weaken patent rights? Um, you destroy the security of the rights, the natural rights of those uh, small businesses who don't have enormous um, uh, legal teams on their payroll. Uh, who who depend upon their patent rights to be able to license their innovative interventions to um, to uh, manufacturers to go out and secure funding for venture capitalists and so forth. Um, and so you're just you, you know you, the, the people who benefit from this, of course, um, are are these these companies that uh, that are that are attacking intellectual property rights. Um, and so th there's a lot of work to be done right here at home. Yeah. Um, there's as a as a result of a lot of these um, conceptual attacks on property that are being uh, launched um, by by elite American law professors and funded by um, uh, large American corporations. Um, what we've seen is that the mechanisms that you would normally employ to, to protect against intellectual property theft, um, things like the availability of what's called injunctive relief. Mm -hmm. Injunctive relief is a is a technical legal term, which just means if someone steals your property, whether it's intellectual property or tangible property, you get to go to court and you get an order from the court. Um, it's called an injunction, which which directs that person stop it. Um, right. And and as a result of the the attacks on intellectual property that we've seen over the last couple of decades, the Supreme Court several years ago said, well. Um, you know, intellectual property. We're not. We don't. We don't really think of it as property anymore. Even though we did actually at the time of the American founding and for most of our history, um, it's really being reconceptualized by these elite American scholars. Um, so you shouldn't get automatic injunctive relief. Well, look. Um, you know, it, it doesn't. It's, it's. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that the governments of, say, India or China or Indonesia are looking at the Supreme Court decision and saying, hmm, well, if the Americans don't believe that it's property anymore right. and that property right holders shouldn't have a right to security their property, why should we bother to protect? Um, and so, we're, you know, in, in many ways, our elite institutions here in the United States have failed us and are sending all the wrong messages um, to the international community. Hmm. Adam, I had a question for you. You, you. you began 
with your uh, establishment of uh, our thinking about intellectual property, but it's just some really uh, poignant points about natural law and uh, the, the things that are, are, are ours by, by the fact that we are created um, and have dignity. I was just thinking about, you know, we, we see this shift with China. We see the shift with uh, the transnational um, uh, corporations that you're just talking about, even on a domestic uh, you know, platform, but I was just wondering what are, what's the religious or uh, background here? Uh, we, we, you know, Michael said that that China does have the power to do this, mm-hmm. um, and people are doing this. And there seems to be this big departure from the way that we've seen intellectual property being treated. Um, and so I just was wondering to go back and kind of look at it from a secularization perspective or a religious perspective. What are you guys' thoughts on? how this affects the this issue. Yeah, I don't I don't know um, how much this is a secular versus religious mm-hmm. um, dynamic being that, that might be part of it uh, to the extent that you know you you can you can sometimes see a correlation between um, religious observance and um, and uh, and fidelity to natural rights. Um, but but you know I, I would say that it's it's more of a philosophical or conceptual problem. Um, uh, I know lots of people who have no religious background at all who perceive that there's something radically unique about being human Mm -hmm. um, and that we are, in fact, uh, we do possess this dignity and we do possess these rights, uh, which which other things in the world do not. Um, And so I don't I don't think you necessarily have to have religious conviction. I think I think it does help motivate um, a desire to respect other people's natural rights. If you believe that there is a God who, um, who who judges our actions and and who created this person standing in front of me who has these rights, okay. Um, but but I think I think as I say I think the problem is fundamentally conceptual or philosophical. The question the question boils down to this: Do I have duties toward other people separate and apart from what any sovereign government says? And I, or or put differently, do I have an obligation to you simply because? Um, the sovereign tells me I do, or or do I have these obligations to you as a matter of natural reason? Right. Can I just turn on my brain and recognize that I ought to treat you with a certain um, respect, and I ought I ought not be willing to do certain things to you simply by virtue of the fact that you're a human being standing in front of me. Um, and and that's that's the that's the tradition which that conceptual. Um, apparatus that can, that set of understandings of 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 uh, natural rights and duties is what gave us the rule of law. It's what fundamentally undergirds not just our intellectual property law, but 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 all of the legal norms and institutions which make the rule of law possible. Um, and that's what we're losing. So, so there is a bigger story here, which you know maybe on another another podcast episode we yeah. can get into. Um, sure. But 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 what we're witnessing in the intellectual property realm it seems to me is sort of one small aspect or or one symptom you might say of a of a of a much more comprehensive um, conceptual or or intellectual malady which is really um uh causing us to fail each other morally uh, if we're not willing to honor our duties toward each other and secure the rights which correlate with those duties uh, we're failing each other is not just not just for economic reasons but also for moral reasons. Mm. That's really good. 
I want to turn now a little bit, Michael, I know you and I in the past have had a lot of conversations about USAID and how we do international aid, international development. Um, my, and I don't remember your position on this, my personal opinion is I, th- I think we're taking this, this framework and structure that uh, was used at the end of the Second World War, uh, part of the Marshall Plan, and we're trying to apply it uh, to these two uh, undeveloped countries that don't have a standard rule of law, that don't have property rights that don't have uh, all of these pieces of framework that are there to aid business and allow for creativity, like we've been talking about with this intellectual property piece. Uh, But China has been doing a a new initiative for a number of years now. It's called the New Silk Road. It's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, And they're making these large investments uh, in developing countries. And they're basically allowing these countries to be overtaken by this debt. And then within a few years, if the country defaults, um, defaults on their on their debt, like Sri Lanka did uh, with a port that China built for them, uh, China comes back and says, "Okay, well we'll just we'll just take it back and we'll run it, and it'll be ours." Uh, and they've done this all across um, Africa, across um, across Asia. Uh, it is it's a I see it as a growing threat, uh, both militarily and in in trade. Um, creating a gap between us and them as far as the way they are engaging these developing countries. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And do you think the U.S. could pursue a similar policy? Do you think that would be harmful th- to the U.S.? Should we just be working to deter China from taking these actions? Uh, and I do think that the amount of money that they're putting into these, uh, because the, the government is so closely tied to business in, in China, because they're skipping all of these steps with these intellectual property pieces for research and development, et cetera, they have the extra money to do things like this. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? So China is certainly spending a lot of money. That is certainly true. They are also investing in countries where a lot of other investors wouldn't go or building things that other private actors, as a state actor, or, or, or through Chinese state-sponsored actors, they're building infrastructure that private actors wouldn't do or domestic actors within those countries can't do. Now, certainly they are, in one sense, uh, throwing their weight around politically. Uh, they are using these dollars as diplomacy. And in one sense, it's proven very effective. Uh, they've been able to establish strong relationships with countries across the globe, but especially in places either tied with their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, New Silk Road, also Africa, throughout Africa, yes. uh, throughout many parts of Asia. Um, this is not necessarily about making a profit in a right. big picture sense, although they would argue, look, the you know, the Belt and Road Initiative by the 2040s will generate, you know, trillions of dollars of extra GDP mm-hmm. globally. Um, but this is not about profit. It's not necessarily about money. It's about power. And it's about outcompeting the West, about outcompeting America and our allies. Uh, and, you know, if you're a recipient of this money from China, this investment, it, it certainly seems like a better deal than aid money from the West, uh, China's coming saying, we have no strings attached aid. Right. And America's coming in saying like, well, we we kind of did that uh, post-World War II. There's a lot of, through, our, through the institutions we created, uh, we would help build dams, we'd help build roads, we'd build a lot of infrastructure. 
uh, in poor countries. And we recognize that uh, uh, quite often when we when we pursue these investments, they didn't really bring about democracy or capitalism. They really didn't bring about prosperity in any sort of meaningful or immediate sense. In fact, all it did was keep the powers at be in place. If they're dictators, they just got a new dam to show off and they can claim it as theirs. Right. And we said, no, 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 no. We've learned from this lesson. We're not going to be doing that anymore. We still kind of do it, but we're not going to do it anymore <laughs> in any sort of meaningful way or as a strategy. China says, actually, that's precisely what we want to pursue. Keeping those in power in power? Absolutely. Sign me up. And of course, as you noted, in a place like Sri Lanka uh, or maybe Madagascar, other places, mm-hmm. These countries are beginning to recognize that there is no such thing as no strings attached aid or debt. Uh, whether the, the China ultimately is making these investments, as I said, for power, and they want power. And that includes not just outcompeting America, but claiming some sort of power ultimately over you. And that is ultimately going to be unacceptable for these countries. So we're, we've honestly yet to see exactly how this will all play out. But I think, first of all, China clearly wasted a lot of money. Second, uh, there's going to be more concerted pushback against Chinese power uh, in the countries in which they're investing in. Uh, the only question is over what time horizon and what other conflicts will come about uh, between now and between now and then, and who will who will China find as allies or enemies through that process, and because of what they've invested now the, honestly all that's beyond my pay grade and expertise right but nevertheless i do not think that america should follow in china's footsteps absolutely not um i also think we should recognize that the foreign aid strategies that we've pursued for many decades for generations in fact has not necessarily made vast swaths of people across the country better off or if the goal has been promoting democracy, has not necessarily been the leading actors behind the spread of democracy worldwide. Right. Often what happens is when democratic uh, movements come up, it's homegrown, not America-led. We can assist, but it's not America-led. And when we've seen millions rise up out of poverty, it's because of homegrown, the rise of homegrown institutions or decisions made by local leaders to change the course of their countries, namely the biggest one being China. Mm -hmm. If you look at the transformation of global poverty over the past couple of generations, the the, the change from millions and millions, billions being deeply in poverty to a billion plus coming out of poverty, it's all China. Right. So it really, we can play, we should play a significant role in providing uh, security for the international order, for international trade, where we have concrete interests, absolutely. Uh, We should be assisting our allies, 100%. Uh, We should be coming alongside these homegrown movements, whether for democracy or more freedom in the marketplace, Mm -hmm. and assisting these countries in building healthy, resilient institutions to sustain those forms of market or government. Right. But we cannot 
we do not honestly have the capacity. It's a humility that we should accept. We don't have the capacity to bring these institutions about or these changes about in any sort of sustainable or meaningful way. Just start with Iraq. And yeah, no, for sure. And this, I think this brings a really neat tangent to where we started. Uh, we started on a primer of, of intellectual property, what it means, what it does, why it matters. You've talked a lot at Acton Institute uh, or at Acton University about human flourishing and property rights and how those things go together. Can you kind of wrap us up with just kind of a review on why intellectual property leads to human flourishing, uh, why it's one of the pieces that leads there, um, and how we can do a better job of fostering that in the U.S., whether it is those judicial reforms that you talked about a little bit at the beginning. Um, how, do we, how do we bring about change here? And, and then, Michael, if you can finish up at the very end after, after Adam and just talk about businesses and why they should continue to try and develop these new products um, and what they can do maybe to, to try and secure those a little bit as well. Yeah, so I, I'd say it's obviously a very important question. I'd say that property is critical, but it's not enough. Right. For formal logical terms, it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition to flourishing. I think Michael's admonition for intellectual humility here is, is, is uh, very, very well taken. We actually don't know what it is that has caused the unprecedented prosperity that we've seen in the Western Hemisphere especially in the, in the Northern Western Hemisphere um, over the last 150 years or so. Um, but, but we do know that there are some key elements. Um, and so one of the things that you have to have is um, the rule of law. So it, it has to be the case um, that, that there is a law which is above even the sovereign, that everybody's under the rule of law. Everybody has obligations. Everybody understands themselves to have Obligations to do the right thing, um, and uh, and and then those those who try to to get away with not doing the right thing um, are are sanctioned uh, or remedies are assessed against. Um, and then and then a second thing, uh, which is which is you might consider sort of a subset of the rule of law, but I think it's actually um, uh, a little bit different. Um, is is private property rights and securing mm -hmm. natural rights um, to to resources and innovations that are created by Human beings. I say it's slightly different because you can have the rule of law without having private property rights. Right. Um, on the other hand, you can't have secure property, property, private property rights without the rule of law. Mm. So, so rule of law comes first, and then once you've got that worked out, as if it's easy, um, <laughs> uh, then 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 you really need this uh, this conceptual understanding that uh, I have a duty not to just appropriate value that you have created not to not to just take your stuff mm -hmm. um and and insofar as i have that duty and i respect that duty you have rights and once you've got those rights and once those rights are secured in law now you can begin to take risks now you can begin to cooperate with other people in in various um uh, institutions and forms of cooperation which require the security of property right um things like uh forming uh, business associations and corporations, licensing, um, all, all of our various finance institutions depend upon secure property rights. Um, I'll just say in, in briefly uh, on this, um, in, in response to your earlier question to Michael, it's ironic, isn't it, that the Chinese government, when they're foreclosing on these mortgages or these, um, uh, these uh, facilities that they're building around the world, 
are exercising natural property rights. <laughs> right. They're they're expecting that their mortgage, which is a property yeah. right, um, is going to be honored by um, uh, the host country. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the assumption there is that this property right is recognized as something that transcends the sovereignty of the host country. The host country doesn't have the right to just say, you know what, we're changing the law and um, and doing away with your mortgage. So so there is there's a real um, there, there's there's something in other words that you can latch on to here. Say, right. Even China, when it's <laughs> at least when it's in their self-interest, believe that there are certain rights which exist independent of positive law and political sovereignty. Um, and what does that suggest? Um, okay. That suggests that there's a re- universal recognition that in order for us to flourish and to do good things in the world, to bring about states of affairs that we want to bring about, economic prosperity and the arts, learning, education, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, we need to respect each other's rights. That's great. No, it's really good. And again, the hypocrisy that China just lives in day to day is just staggering to me. Uh, yeah, that's, that's solid. Michael? Well, this should be a great time to start a business. This should be a wonderful time to be an innovator in America. And I truly believe it is. And so the obligation of our government should be to ensure that when we innovate, when we create, that our ideas will not be stolen. You know, we do this for mom and pop shop. We try to prevent burglars from stealing property in your store. We should be doing the same thing for ideas and for innovation. Now, of course, like I said, playing, fighting intellectual property theft is with China is like playing whack-a-mole. But we do have... Some ideas that are not original to me that have been out there that the U.S. government can be doing both internally and externally to fight this intellectual property theft. So one idea is stronger export controls, say, on particular forms of semiconductors, uh, no transfer rules backed by strong criminal penalties, um, having the willingness to block Chinese participation in American particularly sensitive American ventures. Um, And uh, then in turn, uh, being willing to uh, look to American participants in federally funded research programs and ask them to provide information on their relationship with China, uh, what sort of research they're conducting with China. I think all of this is very significant. Now, a lot of that is internal as well, but, but especially externally, we should be very clear. Intellectual property theft is a crime, and we're going to treat this as criminal behavior, and that American businesses are under no obligation to do business with, a, with criminals or accused criminals. And there should be strong, strong penalties that ultimately should aim at making it commercially disadvantageous for China to use uh, purloined uh, intellectual property, uh, and in turn, uh, commercially disadvantageous for American businesses to do business with those thieves. Uh, I, I think that's a kind of a simple way of putting it. Now, we can't just stop there because, as you said, Bryce, there's kind of a, a larger issue here of America's role in the global marketplace, and especially for our creators, for our makers. Um, and this has been part of this has been one of the backdrops to our relationship with China, 
what's happening with our manufacturing? You know, one of the reasons why I think uh, President Trump tried to institute tariffs was he wanted to help reshore manufacturing, help strengthen American producers of goods. I, I, I think we had to recognize that uh, Asia, uh, Mexico, other countries like that will continue to be hubs for low cost production. There's no way around that. Right. I don't think we want to compete with those countries no. on low value add, low cost production. The pay is not going to be good here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the benefits aren't going to be great if we try to compete with them. It's just not a good idea. The subsidy will just be too outrageous, which right. will hurt all of us as taxpayers. Um, I think one idea uh, that that we've seen is just at the very least investing more in our workforce. Uh, something that uh, Sam Hammond from the Niskanen Center has written about is mm-hmm. um, investing in our workforce in the federal level, the state level, you know, one thing that we can do if you've if you've exhausted your unemployment uh, benefits is help you be eligible for uh, federally funded uh, employment training programs and retraining. Um, states can invest in apprenticeships and on-the-job training uh, in partnerships with companies, professional associations, local workforce development boards. All of this can ensure that reassuring strategies or not, tariffs or not, we want to have a skilled workforce in America. Right. Uh, And that is something that uh, tariffs just cannot bring about. You know, there's no good having reshoring if we still have help wanted signs in our factories. Uh, You know, another thing that Michael Lind, I I don't know if I agree with it, but just those ideas out there, Michael Lind has written on, you know, requiring Basically, that a, that a share of a good manufactured in the U.S. have um, American components, basically, mm-hmm. uh, so that we rather than having some sort of broad brush tariff or quota or subsidy, um, you have just what are called LCRs. Um, so these are just local components, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that some portion of a supply chain ultimately is here in the United States. Now, I think there's a lot of downsides to that kind of strategy. But I bring that up to just say there's a lot of ideas out there um, beyond just simply targeting intellectual property theft, beyond broad brush tariffs that target and punish everybody. There's a lot of good ideas out there that we should be considering debating uh, that will help uh, strengthen our position uh, uh, vis-a-vis China and put us in a stronger position uh, and ultimately help put us in a place where we are prioritizing the American worker, the American right. workforce, and American businesses. And I think that that is a very healthy attitude to have, and that's something that we have potentially forgotten. So let's. Mm-hmm. my approach is let's trade with strength. Let's trade freely, openly, let's trade with strength, with fairness, and let's make sure that we're investing in the future of our small businesses. This has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate your time, Adam and Michael. Um, Just to wrap it up, uh, we've had two guests here on the podcast today, Adam McLeod, Professor of Law at Faulkner, Michael Hendricks, Senior Fellow and Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. Thank you both. It's been wonderful. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Our next episode will be exploring human rights in China and uh, specifically how the Chinese government is treating the Uyghur people, the Muslim Uyghurs and the abuses that have been inflicted on them, the type of 
pressure that they receive from their government and how the State Department is leading um, and pressuring China to respect their human rights. So hope you join us next time. I'm Bryce Fletch. I'm Tony Melton. And you've been listening to The Way Forward.